Take a network break. Pass around the virtual donuts and join us for our weekly analysis of tech news. We've got stories on Arista, Anovium, a new startup, Cosmic Rays, and more. This week's show is sponsored in part by Nokia. Did you know that Apple is using Nokia's data center fabric solution? If you want to know more and learn about Nokia, SR Linux, and the fabric services platform, check out nokia.com slash networks slash DC dash fabric. And we'll tell you more about halfway through. Stick around after the news. We have a sponsored Tech Bytes that explores the latest features in Prisma SD-WAN 5.5 from Palo Alto Networks, including event correlation analysis, improved stats and analytics dashboards, and enhanced AI ops capabilities. Last but not least, join us on April 22nd. It's our first ever live stream event with Alkira. We'll be talking with Alkira about their network cloud, which lets you deploy and manage single and multi-cloud networks with built-in visibility, security, and governance, all delivered as a service. In this live online event, we're going to have technical deep dives, roundtable discussions, the packet pushers will all be hosting. We'll talk about use cases, deployment scenarios, and architectures. You can register at packetpushers.net slash live stream. Uh, and it shouldn't suck. We're trying hard to try and make it uh, uh, like a um, to be recorded. It's like watching a podcast being recorded. It's not. It's sort of a cross between a webinar and a, and a podcast recording. So it is whatever, but it shouldn't suck. So. That's the goal. We're having a lot of meetings with Akira to make sure they bring good people and know what they're going to say. Yep. Uh, and we'll, we'll be there to sort of uh, keep the conversation moving. We're trying to make it lively, informative, and fast-paced. So, yep. uh, yeah, a webinar that doesn't mm -hmm. suck. Let's hope. All right, diving into the news, Arista, they have announced a new release of their Cloud Vision network management and automation software. Uh, the biggest news is a new feature called Cloud Vision Studios, which can automate configuration workflows. So the idea is that engineers and administrators can automate common config tasks like turning up a port, configuring a VLAN or eVPN, and instead of logging into a switch and making the changes via CLI, Studios gives you essentially a GUI interface with point-and-click menu so you can hit a few buttons and off you go. Yeah, so Arista, I, I sort of have this view of Arista about various things but let's focus on the product first cloud vision iterates into the next phase so it goes from being sort of a configuration tool to moving to a multi-domain i think we said in previous releases this product isn't complete the next step will obviously be to start reaching out and stitching networks together whether they're on-prem cloud off-prem cloud whether they're um, your data center someone else's data center whether they're public cloud private whatever definition of data center you want to have Arista needs to start working out a way to add on around that. And basically, this is the next step, I think. Yeah, they're positioning it as your multi-domain network management system. So your Arista data center, your Arista campus, your Arista wireless APs, your virtual versions of mm -hmm. EOS, they can all be managed under that Cloud Vision umbrella, yes. And that unification is actually useful, I think, because... Uh, if you take, for example, Cisco's approach, which is sort of in the silo type model, they have the, the data center and there's two different types of SDN for the data center. And then they have the SD-WAN, which is different from the campus, which is DNA center. And then they've also got right. uh, the, you know, the, the fully overlay driven campus. And then they've got the legacy campus SDN. And none of that sort of feels like it's unified. And then Cisco, to make things worse, Cisco's got these licensing strategies which make it feel even less unified. Like the licensing strategy solves the customer request for um, changing the buying model to a more as-you-go type of query, but it also makes it very complicated to own. Whereas Arista's going here, just one SDM platform makes it easier for us to develop, easier for us to test. We keep reusing the same components and everything runs from one place. That's not uh, a bad thing, provided your internal company is a unified networking team. So that is right. your campus, your data center, your cloud is all one group. 
And if you've actually got different groups, you end up with like, oh, no, 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 I want my campus to be not part of the data center or something like that. So there is a, a reason for both. And I'm just wondering if that's going to work for Restore or against it. Well, there's also the issue that you may not be, you know, an Arista monolith in your campus, your data center, your wireless, your cloud. So <laughs> that's that's obviously not Arista's fault if you decide you want to, you know, have a multi-vendor environment. But if you are an Arista shop, Arista wants to give you that one easy-to-use management platform that does everything. And it feels like they are also, with this release... Uh, trying to extend Cloud Vision into the automation and orchestration framework in this studio's um, feature is sort of a baby step there. It's only uh, configuration management. It's not anything else. So it's not, mm. you know, competing with the likes of an Abstra or a Glueware yet. Um, but this uh, studios for configuration automation is a step in that direction. Yeah. So this path is pretty well trodden by now. It's pretty well established by a number of startups and even some of the established players that you you know, the path to a full orchestration platform is vendor releases configuration software to speed up deployment, zero touch deployment. You know, obviously customers like that because it reduces the objection to buying. You know, if you make it easier to deploy, it's easier to close the deal. Then you add some basic monitoring to give it a bit of, you know, you've got all the connecting to everything, so you might as well add some monitoring software. And then you go like, well, I can easily add some automation. And then you add better automation with eVPN and then you start collecting all the data in the cloud and then you go and buy an AI or an ML company because you've got all this data mm -hmm. in the cloud now that you can analyze and you can extract meaning from the data and now you've got to go and say, well, I need more data. So you add some telemetry to your SDN tool <laughs> and then you now you've got telemetry and analytics and now you can strap on an intelligent automation engine. In other words, go and buy an AI ML company. You've got all the configuration data, you've got all the telemetry data, you can run some AI over it and all of a sudden you're AI ops. So I would imagine, what, do you want to have a bet? Six months, 12 months to AI ops for Arista? I'm going to go 12, 12 months. months. I'm going to go 18. I think they're going to be longer than everybody else. I, I think so. Mm. We've talked about Juniper with the Mist acquisition, how Juniper is all in on AI. They're bringing Mist into the entire portfolio. Arista is always kind of a a market follower. Mm -hmm. uh, they're very careful with the products they roll out. I mean, software quality is, you know, one of the, the points they pride themselves on. So maybe that's the reason. Um, I, I guess I'm not feeling that urgency I'm feeling from other vendors in their competitive sphere around AI ops. Yeah, I think there was a couple of things. I mean, in the early days, it was pretty clear that to me, I felt that Arista wasn't interested in SDN. It just wanted to sell switches and routers. Mm -hmm. Um mm -hmm. And it sort of felt that maybe some SDN would emerge and they wouldn't have to do it and other people could do their SDN. And, you know, that that style of approach felt like what was happening to me. Um, and then it became clear that actually, no, customers didn't want to assemble the solution themselves. They wanted an integrated solution. Cisco made a good pitch around you have to buy our SDN and, you know, and then you have to buy our proprietary switches. You know, we run proprietary protocols that bind with our SDN and that's a feature that's not a bug. We could right. argue that point backwards and forwards a little bit, uh, you know, depending on which side of that you want to stand on. Is it a feature? Is it a bug? You could take either side. Right. So I, I think at this stage, Arista is still playing catch up, but it also means they don't have to make mistakes like go down dead ends and pick the wrong protocols or they're waiting to see what customers are doing instead of what they're asking for. Because a lot of customers don't know what they want and they don't right. understand enough about what's going on to ask for the right things. And it's always this gap between... Vendors saying, oh, we want to give customers what they want. So customers are asking for this. But if customers are asking for a Volkswagen and what they really wanted was a Jaguar or, 
you know, the reverse condition. You know, I wanted a Lamborghini, but what yes. I really wanted was a family station wagon to get to work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yes>. uh, <laughs> you know, it's a bit like to sometimes I look at ACI and it sort of looks like a, you know, a Lamborghini put together by a committee. All these great highfalutin ideas about where it was going to go, but the execution was pretty bad and it would be better to buy something simpler and more conventional and, you know, see how it goes. <laughs> it is kind of like an Italian sports car, very flashy, very expensive, and also very hard to maintain. Yes, yes, perhaps. Perhaps that's the that's probably the nicest thing we've ever said about ACI. <laughs> okay, there you there go. You go. <laughs> Good day. So I uh, just want to call out a couple other new features in the Cloud Vision 2021 release. One is the ability to collect and visualize in-band network telemetry from the Broadcom ASICs and some of Arista switches. Uh, so it can show things like latency issues and uh, pop it onto a network topology map. So if you're trying to troubleshoot uh, where this latency is coming from, it can show you based on uh, information from the ASIC. You can also combine it with flow data they're correct collecting to see which specific flows are being uh, affected. They've also added new features for managing Arista's wireless APs, including an RF dashboard and an application quality of experience dashboard. Again, this is only for Arista's wireless APs, but it's all built into Cloud Vision, that multi-domain, multi-network view. That that Broadcom integration feels strange because not all of Arista switches run the Broadcom ASIC. So you'd have this feature where you'd have an inconsistent access to telemetry. Um, that feels to me like a condition that Broadcom has set on Arista saying, you must implement this feature and present it to customers as part of a licensing agreement. And we talked last week about how Broadcom does um, use its position and does like to strong arm its suppliers into doing things that it wants. So maybe that's that's the way to think of this. Maybe. I guess the other way, though, it seems like Arista, if Arista has access to this telemetry from Broadcom, why not collect it? Mm-hmm. Why not expose mm-hmm. it? You know, we already know that their whole NetBD value proposition, this ties into that very nicely. So it seems to me more like, oh, we can get this feature. All right, let's take it. And maybe it doesn't apply to all of our switches, but for the majority running the Broadcom ASICs, yeah, why not? It's the uh, Trident ASICs, I believe. Yeah. Yeah, which is pretty limited, but maybe they'll roll it out to the rest over time, the Jerichos and the Tomahawks, see how it goes. But it does feel a bit weird to just do it with one ASIC, like to use the telemetry feature of one ASIC in a company that uses a wide, diverse range of ASICs, not just one. All right, well, links in the show notes if you want to read more about it for yourself, the new vision of Cloud Vision 21. Speaking of ASICs, uh, ASIC maker Innovium has announced a new line of switches that come with the Sonic Network OS pre-installed. Support for the software is going to be provided either by Innovium or its ODM partners, and switch options range from a 100-gig 32-port topper rack switch to a 400-gig 32-port leaf spine mod. Speaking of very big networking devices, (laughs) uh, Innovium (laughs) ASICs occupy a really specific niche in the switch market. Uh, and their claim to fame is that their ASIC is only doing 50 gig SIRDES. So really that means you're going to be doing 100 gig and 400 gig in these switches, which is why it's limited to those uh, those models. And um, they've been quite successful. Um, they now have over a billion dollar valuation for an ASIC maker. And they have some pretty interesting re- reference customers. LinkedIn, Cisco apparently resells some of their products uh, through to various customers. And I see this as a as a land and expand that Innovium now got a place in the market. They've got a pipeline. They're selling their ASICs. They diversified the portfolio to 6, 12, 25 terabit. So they've got the spectrum of products. Yep. And so what yep. they're saying now is we've got to grow into adjacent markets. And the way to do that is to recognize that disaggregated solutions haven't been widely accepted. We aren't seeing 
company saying, I'll go and buy my white box from this vendor and I'll have a network operating system from that vendor. Now, whether that's customers or whether that's vendors don't want to do business that way or whether there's some other, you know, we've outlined many different business drivers behind the decision there, um, mm -hmm. but they're not buying it. So Inovium's way of reaching out to customers to buy its ASICs is to say, uh, we are going to brand a bundle called Terra Certified. They'll work with a number of uh, equipment manufacturers to produce a certified hardware device using their ASIC. And then they will provide a version of the Sonic operating system that is supported and updated by Inovium going forward. And that should address the weakness in the sales model for customers who say, oh, but I don't want to have to do that myself. Yeah, I think that's, you know, <laughs> the, the benefit and the drawback of the disaggregation market is you can pick your hardware, pick your software, but then it's up to you to glom them together. And that there, there's a lot of fiddly bits that have to be integrated, uh, you know, the, the abstraction between the hardware and the the ASIC and the NOS. Um, there's also cabling and uh, issues. And so Anovium's just like, don't worry about it. If you just want to buy a switch that has a NOS, we've got one for you now. It's Sonic. There's a lot of um, interest bubbling up around Sonic uh, because it's open source and because it's very attractive to cloud providers because it's uh, customizable. Mm -hmm. So Anovium, I think, yeah, I agree by uh, rolling out a pre-bundled option, which sort of breaks away from the whole disaggregation model. Anovium is trying to land and expand. Yeah. So, you know, the pitch is, you get your high-end silicon from validated suppliers. Hopefully, and I, I imagine that Anovium is working hard to get uh, Dell and HPE to take on their ASIC and use it in their switches, I imagine. Um, they're going to provide a supported open source no network operating system. Uh, and we talked last week about the, or was it the week before, Drew, about Sonic could become like the default, a Linux of right. networking where there's yep. different versions of Sonic, but they're all fundamentally the same. Uh, now, they all run FRR. They all basically have the same way of working, but there's some, the vendors have been able to repackage it in some way in the same way that Red Hat and SUSE and Ubuntu have in right. the Linux space. That's a possible outcome there. Yep. Um, however, what the ASIC makers are doing, and we alluded to this over the last few weeks, is that the ASIC makers are still embedding a proprietary blob. So it's not open, open. It's mostly open so <laughs> the, the nos is open there's that proprietary uh, shim in the middle yeah. between the asic yeah. and your nos yeah. so um sort of like the what i call the microsoft open model it's open but it's, <laughs> it's proprietary in any way that matters so you can't just go and take it and do whatever you want with it you're basically stuck with microsoft's proprietary code a bit like the kerberos in microsoft active directory was meant to be an open source standard and it was going to be you know interoperable with every other kerberos implementation until Microsoft said, uh, put in a bit of code that makes it proprietary. So it's open all the way up until it's not. And that's basically the same thing that's happening here. So not really open, but a step in the right direction. Sure. And I mean, that's the trade-off if you're deciding not to go the full white box disaggregation model because you don't feel like having mm -hmm. to boot uh, a NOS onto, you know, 100 or 200 switches that showed, showed up on your loading dock. So no, I, it's one of those trade-offs. You have to decide what's worth but it. But I do think the Sonic thing could be quite interesting in the sense that if you've just got a range of switches that all have Sonic, and then, okay, so the, some of them will be slightly different versions of Sonic to each other, that's not necessarily a bad thing because if everybody mm -hmm. had the same... It's a bit like Linux, you know, whether you run Red Hat, Ubuntu, or SUSE, they're slightly different, you know, different package managers and so forth. But fundamentally, anybody can sit down in front of any Linux to a larger extent and get to work. And I think that would be good for networking if that was to emerge over time. But there's still place 
for the vendors to value add, to come in and say, we're going to give you support, or we're going to provide a testing, or we're going to have some specific features in our Sonic distribution that would attract you. And there's something in there. So that's a viable path forward. We just have to wait to see how that emerges. Yeah. And just a few points I want to make sure that are clear. Anovium is not putting out its own Sonic distro. It's using straight Sonic that you get you know, right from the Sonic project. Folks should know that because Sonic is modular and customizable, if you make any changes to the NOS, like you decide you want a different routing stack than what Anovium shipped with, then the support for that individual routing stack is on you. That kind of, it, it doesn't destroy the whole support model, but it that element of it is now on you. So just keep that in mind. <laughs> yeah. Uh, speaking of Whitebox, Pika 8, which competes in the Whitebox and networking market and makes the open source network OS Picos, has announced a $20 million investment in, in a C round of funding. This brings Pika 8's total venture investment through $39.1 million. Uh, just to note, this round essentially matches the amount it raised in its A and B rounds. I guess the way I'm viewing it is uh, maybe a vote of confidence that Pika 8 is poised to make big moves in the disaggregation and network OS market, and $20 million will certainly help push marketing and sales. Yeah, I think this is interesting. We've talked before about Pika 8 typically as a campus player, and I sort of felt uh, that they were occupying a market where most of the other vendors hadn't participated. So... If you sort of looked at what uh, Aruba was doing, it was sort of focused on the branch with the Wi-Fi and doing its campus thing, uh, but wasn't doing SDN. Sort of that's what that when that was Aruba's pedigree. Arista didn't want to do the campus. Juniper really didn't want to do the enterprise campus. Um, and then Cisco came along with its DNA center application and showed that it could actually extract enormous sums of money out of the campus. And suddenly the scrabbling noise of vendors competing to get back into the enterprise, <laughs> into the campus became, you know, Arista bought a Wi-Fi company, Juniper bought a Wi-Fi company, and so on and so forth. And we've seen Aruba right. now move back into the enterprise. I think actually what we might be seeing is a recognition by most of the vendors is that networking is becoming a real focus, if not the center. Like... If you've got a AWS and a Google over here and you've got an on-premise data over there, what's the one thing that connects them all together? The universal thing? And that's the network. And so if you haven't got a networking strategy, like HPE has been a little weak around its networking strategy, but it's catching up at a great rate of knots now, this leaves you know them scrambling in. So I thought Pika 8 had left sort of like they were able to get deals in the campus and be successful in the overhang of Cisco's very high-priced DNA solution, and they'd come in with a white box, very cost-effective and fit right in, sort of down towards where Extreme Networks was trying to play. But now they've mm -hmm. decided to step up, I think, and say, we're going to be a, taking them on. Uh, we're going to go straight in, take on the big vendors and give it a go. So they've got funding from startup, from venture capitalists, and I suspect they'll spend it all on marketing, which is what they need to do. I would think, now. yes. Yeah. Um, you know, one red flag is that you know this investment round came seven years after the B round. So it, it, you can is this an emergency thing that Pika needs, or is it just more of a vote of confidence? Like, all right, now that now is the time. The time is here. Let's make a, a another push to really get uh, Pika eight some visibility in the market. There are, I guess two ways to well, look up at it. So now I think they've sort of been running along as a bit of a pro am. Like we'll do it small. And, <laughs> <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like we don't want to spend yes, too much yes. money on marketing or whatever. We'll just tick over and. You know, that's what that's. But the the point is, is that, you know, we've talked before that companies like Cisco spend 50% of the sale price is the cost of selling it to you. And I'm not joking. Right. If you go and get the financial reports, that's the math, right? 
Um, so if you're not spending roughly equivalent sums on profile and marketing exercises and salespeople out there banging on doors and annoying resellers and that sort of stuff, I don't think you're even going to get the exposure that you want. So if this is right. where they're, this, you know, in theory, they should be able to link spending on marketing and sales and see the results almost immediately. And if it's not, well, then right. I imagine they won't actually get the money. It'll just be a headline. And with the issues that Cumulus has had uh, in relationship with Broadcom and being swallowed by NVIDIA, um, I think Pika 8 also sees a potential opportunity, a slightly wider playing field uh, for its network OS yeah. and its management Yeah, tools. I agree. You know, but they also need to compete with people like Ubiquity, Microtech, Meraki to some extent if they're going to come from the bottom up. But it's good to see a bottom yeah. up play. You know, not everything has to come from top down. It's very much the fashion of Silicon Valley at the moment to come up with the most expensive solutions for the biggest customers and then bring it down market rather than sell it from the bottom up. I think bottom up solutions generally work out better if they can survive. Right. So the takeaway, I guess, from this whole section is white box and disaggregation may still have legs. I think so. Uh, it, it's going to come down to uh, there's a market for well-priced equipment. And we've talked before that Cisco appears to be going up market, raising their prices. And if customers don't want to be a part of that new higher cost, different model that they're putting together, you know, higher price model with software integrated into a bundle and you buy all Cisco or you're not part of Cisco, there's room for other companies to come in and pick off the market share in the middle of that. Although the competition is going to be fierce, you had referenced Aruba earlier. They have done a lot of work um, revamping their own network OS and pushing out a whole new line of switches, including big core switches. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's a lot of fight going and on for the Juniper, campus. And you've got uh, and Arista, Meraki, Cisco, you've got Arista coming into the enterprise campus market. So yes, now's the time, I guess, if they don't, you know, maybe. All right, a quick break to tell you about our sponsor today, Nokia. Did you know that Nokia has over 1.1 million routers deployed and powers some of the largest interconnect networks in the world, including Equinix and DECIX? And recently, Nokia launched its data center fabric solution, building on over 20 years of IP know-how and expertise. The new DC fabric solution includes SR Linux. This is a new open, extensible, resilient network operating system. There we are again. On a standard Linux, it uses Nokia's field-proven protocol stacks and provides best-in-class streaming telemetry. There's also interconnect routers, a portfolio of Leaf, Spine, and SuperSpine platforms based on Merchant Silicon, and the Fabric Services platform. This is a declarative, intent-based automation and operations toolkit for day zero, day one, and day two ops. The Fabric Services platform uses Kubernetes and a distributed microservices approach to deliver a true cloud-native automation and operations platform. There's also certified design templates and a digital sandbox. You can create a true emulation of your data center fabric. Operators can automate data center networks at scale and speed with confidence. You can check out the new data center fabric solution at nokia.com slash networks slash DC dash fabric. That's nokia.com slash networks slash DC dash fabric. If you want more details, listen to Heavy Networking episode 559 for more insights into SR Linux. It's got a nice, it's a neat product, the SR Linux. The more I research it as we do the shows with Nokia, the more interested in it I become. Yeah. All right, moving on. Uh, former VIP telefounders and executives have launched a new startup. It's called Prosimo. It calls itself an application infrastructure experience company. The company has just emerged from stealth with $25 million in VC funding and the requisite accompaniment of industry buzzwords, including multi-cloud AI and zero trust. Uh, so do you remember 10 years ago, we talked about network functions virtualization? Yes. Yeah, this idea that we would put firewalls and load balancers in as software features in the network and we would steer traffic between those functions. Mm -hmm. uh, this is one of them. 
So to my mind anyway, um, the company operates a range of functions, network virtual functions distributed around other people's clouds. And what you do is you forward the traffic into their NFV network, and then a range of services can be applied to it. So at the heart of it, this is not a new idea. We've got other companies that we've spoken about on the show doing this. Um, they're particularly focusing, uh, I think they're coming out possibly a little early, Drew, maybe just a touch ahead of where they would like to be, but they feel a need perhaps to get started on the sales cycle. Uh, but basically, uh-huh. once you get the traffic into the network, you can do a whole bunch of things like a private content delivery network. You can get uh, DNS routing, multi-cloud networking. They can do data compression for certain types of traffic. You can pull resources, translate uh, HTTP flows into quick or HTTP 2, 3. You get fast TLS negotiation. So you get acceleration, and then they're very much emphasizing their security functions, things like DDoS, WAF, machine learning-based behavior, analysis of the flows, policy, and zero trust. Yeah, so the way I'm looking at it is they essentially have software that you spin up in the public cloud of your choice, and then Prosimo essentially acts as a proxy between remote users accessing applications behind them in that public cloud, and also it acts as a proxy between application elements that may be in one cloud and need to connect to another. So if you've got an application running in Azure and it needs to uh, pull data from an S3 bucket, uh, Prosimo can proxy those connections or broker those connections and provide security controls on your behalf. So it's sort of a shim between remote users accessing applications and applications accessing other applications. And then, as you say, it layers in all those features like acceleration, security, and so on. Yeah, and it's it's just, and, and we've seen that story a few times now. We've seen content delivery companies turn their networks around the other way and accept inbound traffic flows, and they're adding network functions into their content delivery, into their existing CDN platforms. And we've seen a number of other companies do the same sort of thing. I think what's unique here is that ability to say uh, they're focusing on the security aspects in the initial launch. I suspect the the product will broaden out into a range of new features. But uh, I think there's something interesting in this whole space of this NFV in the cloud thing. I don't know how many of these we need, Drew. Do you you ever feel like (laughs) this has sort of gotten to be a crowded market? But uh, we'll see. Um, It's worth having a look at and thinking about how it works. Yeah, they're definitely promoting this from the application experience angle, meaning they want to make sure that end users and the application itself get the best possible experience. And so they've built this infrastructure that runs in the public cloud. It's within your control domain. So it's not something you can't get your hands on if you've got security concerns. It's already running you know, within your own VPC or whichever construct you're using for the public cloud. Um, but yeah, I'm honestly having a hard time wrapping my head around sort of where they play. Um, but Clearly, they see an opportunity here, and they've got some $25 million to convince you that they uh, have a good reason to exist. Well, nominally, if they get the sales and revenue, yeah. These startups don't always get, right. uh, here's $25 million. They get, here's some, now show me that you're doing something, and then here's a second round, you know, that sort of thing. But there's a headline number for sure, yeah. Right. They're also definitely touting their Viptela credentials mm-hmm. uh, with one of the, the founders of this company coming from Viptela. Yeah, for sure. Which makes sense. All right, links in the show notes if you want to find out more about Prosimo. Uh, onto a more straightforward announcement, CPacket has released a new packet capture appliance. Uh, it can capture packets in bursts of up to 100 gigabits per second and offers a sustained capture rate of 60 gigabits per second. The C-Store 100 can also provide analytics around flows, TCP state, latency, and more. So 
We have to do packet capture for forensic security performance analysis. This is a big giant box that works with a variety of packet brokers. Yeah, this is one of those niche markets. There's, a, you know, obviously companies like ExtraHop always also compete in this market space. They're able to capture packets at, you know, phenomenal data rates. Another one is uh, VRV networks. So if you need to be able to capture traffic at 100 gigabits per second with sustained data rates of 60 gigabits per second, that is not a simple thing to do. You certainly can't right. do it in the cloud, in a public cloud. They just can't capture that much data uh, reasonably, and they can't guarantee the delivery. So if you have a need for this, well, guess what? You've got it. <laughs> yeah, apparently they can burst to 100 gig packet capture for about 60 seconds with that sustained rate of 60 gigabits per second. Mm -hmm. So yeah, big box, big, box, big box. Uh, moving on to some not quite space networking news, the acting commissioner of the U.S. Federal Communications Commission has proposed carving out dedicated band of spectrum for private companies that launch rockets. At present, the spectrum reserved for rocket-related telemetry like tracking and troll data is licensed only for the federal government. Private companies can access the spectrum, but it's on an ad hoc basis and requires special application processes. So this proposal would essentially carve out some spectrum and say, yes, it's just there. Private launchers can go and use it. Yeah. So most of the space industry is effectively government run or government subsidized. In, even in the case of SpaceX, for example, which is a, a headline customer, most of their money actually comes from the US government lifting satellites into orbit and so forth. And certainly for the last several years, that's been their primary revenue source is taking government money to to undertake military and civilian projects. And so this uh, sort of is a reflection of the fact that governments uh, want to intervene in space uh, rather deliberately. And the UK government has taken an aggressive stance, for example, in promoting its space program and it's offering mm -hmm. special access to spectrum itself. Obviously, in Europe, you've got the European Space Agency, and it's got a complete government apparatus around the space industry that's going on there. Um, so you, when you see the US government suddenly stepping up and saying it's going to get involved in space industry and start to do things for that part of it, you want to see, I think you need to see this in that framework. It's basically trying to set up an agreement so that space companies come and set up in your country and you're creating the right, right. regulatory conditions. And part of that is to allocate spectrum for space networking. And as the, as the article points out, the UK actually got into this two or three years ago and started to lay out uh, the guidelines for the space companies and saying, we're going to do this for you and that for you. And uh, I see the, re the US government going, oh, well, well, we better do something as well. Or more likely, the space companies are saying, well, they're going to give us this. What are you going to give us? So, yeah. Right. And anything you can do to remove sort of those tedious things like having to keep up your application to get access to the spectrum makes life a little bit easier for a private company. Uh, the release also notes that um, rocket launches have increased about 5x since 2012 in the US, although the number is starting at seven per year. That's right. <laughs> so it's up around 35 or 40 right, now. Yeah. Um, but but still, that kind of growth means, yeah, let's, let's, help, let's help smooth the way a little. I do continuously watch the SpaceX launches even today. I find them fascinating. That and the volcano in Iceland, uh, it's often in a little corner of my screen. It's somehow <laughs> soothing to see the two, space launches and volcanoes. Um, I, I think that, I, I think you like fire. <laughs> maybe. Maybe that's it. Maybe there's something going on there, something, whatever. It's, it's very interesting about the whole space thing in the sense that governments see this as an industry. Like, if you are the UK government, it's something where you could actually build an industry of specialist talent and... Uh, generate tax revenue and jobs, or, you know, high-tech jobs that would be vote winners, in effect. So uh -huh. there uh -huh. is that. Um, but of course, you know, with SpaceX well-centered in the US, I think they're going to have a tough time 
uh, attracting rocket companies away. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah, I think the U.S. wants to do everything it can to keep SpaceX and others here yeah. and happy. And the FCC is offering some pretty tasty spectrum in the two ter- in the, that it's giving away. It's actually quite uh, a quite a concession to give away frequency in the twenty two hundred megahertz band, which is quite premium. I imagine some of the mm-hmm. telcos are going to throw their toys out the cot. I'll expect. Uh, <laughs> You know, a couple of weeks we're going to see a challenge from the telco saying, why are you giving that to them? We want them to you. All right. There's a prediction for this spreadsheet. Yeah, we, we might put the wham, wham, wham bit in maybe then. All right. Last but not least, uh, the Japanese telecom giant NTT says cosmic rays cause as many as 40,000 errors in communications equipment every year. The so-called soft errors tend to be quickly corrected, but NTT posits that significant disruptions could occur. So cosmic rays, I've actually been using that excuse for 20, 25 years, and it's actually not entirely unrealistic. You can make the claim and it's not totally false but in this particular case it was a uh, wasn't ntt it's a professor of the osaka university graduate school of information science and an expert in soft errors said malfunctions have actually affected other network communication devices and electrical machines at factories in and outside of japan drew uh yes i think he was doing this research on behalf of ntt so i did actually go off and um do some research on the Masanori Hashimoto, and he is genuinely a professor of design. Uh, he actually uh, has research interests in the manufacturability, reliability, and timing, and soft error characterization and low power circuit design. So he is actually a specialist in VLSI chip design. And in theory, if his research articles on the IEEE and uh, on the various uh, research papers publications, he's actually an expert in this type of thing, at least to a larger or lesser extent so not unreasonable the takeaway is this is not like a late april fool's joke or anything that this is actual real research going on yes i believe so it is the article reads a bit strange because it appears to be an english translation of a a japanese article but uh yeah Mm -hmm. if if professor hashimoto says it's true now you can say to your boss it's just cosmic rays and then point him to this article and uh, you should be good <laughs> yes the next time you can't diagnose a problem yep. it's cosmic rays here's the yeah, article it's not dns it's cosmic <laughs> rays here you go <laughs> right that's there we go it's always dns and if it's not it's cosmic there you rays go. that's that's what we're looking for <laughs> All right, well, that wraps up the news. Coming up next is our conversation with Palo Alto Networks on latest features in Prisma SD-WAN 5.5. That's starting right now. Today's Tech Bytes podcast explores new features in Prisma SD-WAN 5.5 from Palo Alto Networks. And you may have guessed Palo Alto is our sponsor for this episode. New features include things like event correlation and analysis, improved stats and analytics dashboards, and the ability to export telemetry to third-party devices and service. We're also going to talk about how all these features augment and extend Prisma SD-WAN's AI ops capabilities. And our guest from Palo Alto Networks is Bill Prude. He's Senior Product Manager for SD-WAN. Bill, welcome to the podcast. So let's start with the, the first feature I mentioned, event correlation. What kind of events, what are they being correlated with, and, and why bring this into an SD-WAN product? So thanks, Drew, for the question there. So we're, we're making quite a few improvements in the realm of uh, event correlation through use of machine learning and AI ops. So one of the things that we're doing is, you know, starting with what, what our customers asked us to do many years ago. The, one of the early promises of SD-WAN was to deliver uh, more information, not just about the network and centralized information, but also about the application performance and user experience. Mm-hmm. So we did what our customers asked very early on. And then after they 
we gave them what they asked for, they said, wow, this is a lot of information. How do we deal with this? <laughs> so we're following oh, up. those customers. Oh, I'm telling you. <laughs> So, so we're following up on that. They said, okay, you gave me, gave me too much. Now, now take some of it back. So this, uh, we actually started a project last year where we, we released our first iteration of our event correlation engine. And that took some really low hanging fruit as far as being able to sift out a lot of the, the noise, filter out the noise and really just provide a very pointed set of, of root causes uh, for certain use cases. So we're continuing that project uh, here in our spring release. We're adding some additional uh, event correlation rules. So these leverage supervised machine learning. We're, we're taking in and training the machine learning engine on another specific set of use cases uh, where we can filter out the noise and again, give the customer a root problem. So this is the next phase of that project was actually a multi-release project. So with Prisma Access Release 5.5, we're continuing with our our three main tenants of autonomous, app-defined, and cloud-delivered as part of the Prisma SD-WAN product. Uh, Specifically in this release, we're focusing on autonomous, where we want to take a lot of that heavy lifting that the network administrator does uh, and, you know, move that operational burden uh, into our system, right? So we can take and present the administrator with a, um, a, you know, a set of root cause problems versus making them uh, sift through all of the the, the base level issues that exist in the network. Mm. I think it's interesting from a, if we sort of take a step back, that software defined when has gotten traction with customers so quickly that it's actually getting a hold of people. And they're actually also partly because of the pandemic, but partly because we want more than we've already got. Once you've solved the WAN problem, you know, the router connecting to the WAN was always so difficult and painful and couldn't be changed. And we were scared of changing it. As soon as you've got a software appliance, it becomes obvious that security is a big thing, right? And that's where the sassy idea came from. But it was also who gets to access this SD-WAN, because then all of a sudden it becomes this merger of the campus and the branch, right? Yeah, that's right. The network has definitely become more homogenous, right, where we gather telemetry, you know, across multiple points in the network. So that that being proactive in how we gather that information and filter it out and provide uh, that to the, the user in a consumable way is really, really important. Can you give me an example of kind of events that you'd be pulling together for me? So is it something to do with like maybe the throughput I'm seeing on the link uh, aligned with some kind of application response time, that kind of thing? What are we talking about with event correlation? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. So what we do is we, we take in, it could be events from multiple different systems. So um, one, one root cause problem can trigger off, could be you know 10 or 100 or maybe even a thousand different individual problems in the network. Uh, they could be related to connectivity uh, and or response at a, at a network or application layer. So what we do is we, we actually proactively look, we take all of those things uh, in real time and we'll say, okay, all these things appear to be related. And with some level of confidence, we'll we'll give the user an alarm that says, okay, you have all these things here that are related. Here's what we feel with a high level of confidence is the actual problem going on. So Mm. it's what we would do looking through logs years ago. We would look through, you know, hundreds of lines of logs on a router. Now we can take that and automate that process in a, you know, in a software defined world and provide a root cause. Okay, I get it. So instead of a thousand alarms going off of me having to try to figure out what's the root cause, you're taking all that data, munging it, 
and doing running it through some machine learning algorithms to say, based on our experience, we think root cause is X. That's correct. There's a unique thing here too, is that a lot of people have actually been doing this, taking logs from their network and feeding it into a general purpose logging tool. Mm-hmm. And either A, not looking at it at all and just having it there, or maybe every now and then running a report looking for stuff, but it's sort of casual. There are some logging systems that sort of say, we've got smarts to analyze the logs for you. And what they're really just doing is some simple, basic pattern matching. So if you have a a generic logging tool in your IT infrastructure somewhere, um, you can do that. What we're talking about here is a dedicated networking AI, you know, a machine learning driven type tool that knows what networking logs should look like and can actively tell you from a networking perspective. It's not some general purpose log going, you know, heuristically analyzing and going like, oh, you've had a hundred of the same log alert. Maybe you should do something about that. It's much more like, oh, this is an access. This is definitely a security problem. This person should not be trying to authenticate 75 times from a single location. Exactly right. And that's where the supervised versus unsupervised part of machine learning comes in. Mm-hmm. So for the supervised component is where we we give the problem a label and we say, when you see these conditions, this is the likely outcome. And unsupervised, uh, what you, you talked about was generic systems that can analyze this and say, hey, here's something that occurred or some type of occurrence we've noticed, but they don't really know what the problem is. Since we know the, uh, the SD-WAN system, we know the network very well, we can tell the system ahead of time, when you see these conditions, this is what the problem actually is. So continuing the enhancements in our AI ops area for this release, we're actually not just introducing what we call system rules or system uh, machine learning rules, but also introducing an event policy framework where we give the administrator ultimate control over uh, alerting. So we allow them to, number one, take in any type of alert, either one that we're automatically aggregating and providing to them as as a root cause type issue, uh, or maybe it's just a base level alarm that goes off. We allow the, the customer to take that alarm and basically do multiple things with it. So first of all, they can take and adjust the priority. So we're introducing a concept of customer priority where they can adjust the priority from level P5 to P1 based upon uh, their you know, importance in the network. That will, of course, inside of our product, will change colors on, on the map and alarms and different, different parts of the system that'll, that'll show up. So you're sort of signaling to the supervised AI that these are things that are important. You're, because it's not uh, – sometimes we talk about AI ops as if it's like this mystical, magical, fantastical thing that just suddenly works things out. And I think in time we might get closer to that. But what you're really doing is sending a signal to the to the algorithm to say this is important or key or critical, watch this more closely or apply some level of importance. Is that what's happening? That's correct. Yeah. So, so then that way, when the system finds that event again, and, and depending on what your your next steps and your operational continuum are, uh, you can then follow up with the appropriate action outside of the system, taking whatever actions are appropriate for the system to take. It's also a sense of ownership. It doesn't leave the operate like the system totally doing its own thing. You're still spending time knowing what's going on, which I think operationally remains important. The temptation to just walk away and go, oh, it's fine, you know, it's, that's important. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. We, early on, we were accused of um, of fixing the network or, or moving the user experience uh, around problems uh, too well, and they hmm. wouldn't know when an actual network issue was occurring. So now we're following up with them to actually see that and get notified on it uh, when oh, necessary. Oh, we were so good. We had to dial it back. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that was a humble brag right there. Yeah, humble right. Brag. Wow. Slick, right. slick humble bragging right there. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. And on top of that, we actually introduced a couple more components that we, where the user can actually instruct the machine learning engine, right? They can actually give a conditional set of, uh, of criteria, whether that be uh, any object in the system, a site, a device, uh, a network, a circuit, uh, things like that, where they can actually uh, suppress alarms based mm. upon their own operational preferences. They can escalate alarms. So you tell the system, if you see these conditions on these things uh, for a certain amount of time, I need to know about it if it's occurring for longer than 10 minutes or 30 minutes or whatever your operational preferences are. So really important to allow you to tune the exactly what you want to see from the network from, from an alerting perspective, uh, you can get that. And then one more final component that we introduced, which is um, one of those nagging things that's always hard uh, as, a, as a network practitioner to be able to identify are flapping events, things that occur for a second or five seconds uh, and maybe occur once every 30 minutes or an hour. So we introduced as part of this update as well, the ability to identify flapping conditions. And these are all uh, user tunable. So you can say on these set of things, when this other set of things occur, these events occur, Occur, um, tell me if this occurs, you know, more than X time in, in minutes, right? So you set the parameters of which you want to know when something is flapping, the system will do that for you and give you a special alert that says, hey, for example, um, your internet circuit at your corporate headquarters has went up and down three times in the past 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that means I can then raise a case with my service provider. That's exactly right. Exactly right. And that's that's the next part of kind of the operational continuum is we uh, tie in with uh, several third-party systems through our CloudBlades, uh, in particular, as an example, uh, ServiceNow. So we have a ServiceNow CloudBlade integration. And CloudBlades are just a, an abstract platform where we execute uh, code that's really disjoint from both our development lifecycle and ServiceNow's lifecycle so that we can take and do independent upgrades to make sure that we're always uh, taking into account uh, the, the changes and APIs and versions and specs uh, of either product at any given time. So one of those is our ServiceNow CloudBlade, where we take an event uh, after you've done all the, the systems and all the pre-filtering, filter out the noise, and you tell it, you know, hey, here's what's important. That can then be imported into ServiceNow uh, and maybe at a, whatever priority you deem appropriate. And then that kicks off a workflow in ServiceNow, right? If you have a priority one issue, then that may kick off a certain workflow where automatically a supervisor is notified in the operations hmm. center and so it gets immediate attention. So I guess the, the 5.5 release also has done some other things, including improvements on stats and analytics dashboards. Can you give us an example? Yeah, absolutely. So kind of continuing the operational improvement theme, uh, we wanted to reorganize the information that we gather, which is really a massive amount of telemetry about the networks and the user experience. We wanted to provide some additional views. So we did a little bit of retooling to give a a circuit level view of a site and just kind of give you an ability to in one single viewpoint in the network or in the system to be able to see uh, what's my consumed bandwidth over time, uh, what is my uh, actual measured, passively measured bandwidth, my good put as it were Mm -hmm. uh, at the site along with my configured bandwidth. So I can kind of see those, those three metrics in one location uh, without the need to click around. And there's just really a general optimization. And that, that's kind of a, uh, you know, a builds upon some of our other things where we, we kind of help you identify, you know, great issues, right? Uh, proactively, maybe give you alerts where you need to upgrade a circuit. This is just kind of a base view to help you help, you know, from an administrator standpoint, be able to identify those types of issues. Uh, and I also understand you have augmented the device's ability to export device telemetry. So if I want to feed something to a third party um, target, I can do so. In about, I would say, 90% of our deployments, uh, the customer will move away from whatever 
system they have to, to monitor their, their net flow that they've used historically. And the reason is we have uh, provided them a really rich set of analytics natively in the Prisma SD-WAN portal that allow you to go beyond network into application experience and really just kind of a, a, you know, a big broad set of things that we can show the customer. Um, for that remaining 10%, and, and for, in many cases, those are customers with very large networks where they have, you know, big data centers with lots of switches, uh, lots of SD-WAN devices. They have lots of servers and, and SANs and all kinds of pieces of equipment that aren't just WAN related. So for those, they have, you know, the, the commonly available systems that, you know, have been around for years. Uh, and they use those to collect telemetry and have that one central operational dashboard. So for those environments, what we're doing is really going from a basic, you know, NetFlow V5 set of capabilities and bringing those third parties uh, into feature parity with our portal. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you say that people still want to do NetFlow. I think the challenge here is that people still want to do what they want to do. They're not necessarily going to be all in with what the what Palo wants to give you, like as part of the the Prisma SD-WAN is that here are the features. And for most people, I think they actually want what you give them. But when you want something that's not in the package, NetFlow kind of solves that problem. Is that right? That's right. NetFlow or IP fix does solve that problem. So yeah. that and combined with, you know, basic SNMP polling help you, you know, solve those, uh, those gaps for sure. And I think the other part about this is it's also a recognition that maybe you've got some other infrastructure, maybe you're migrating from something to SD-WAN and you need to monitor both in a unified way, perhaps. And having one tool to monitor everything is actually a useful feature. Absolutely. Yes. And we, we recognize the importance of that uh, in, you know, in our customers network for sure. And that's why we've invested um, pretty significantly in bringing our ability to export information yeah. uh, about the system um, up to parity with our native portal. And the other useful thing about NetFlow is you can either do it in-house or you can export to a cloud-based service these days too. So you can actually have this SD-WAN idea that everything's cloud-managed and cloud-operated, centrally managed to control. And there is a, a matching service where you can actually send it to some third-party collector who's actually in the cloud. So infinite scale, infinite storage, in inverted commas, you know, and so forth. So it's actually, that's a useful way to think about NetFlow and why you might want it, even if you're thinking, oh, but I can get everything I want in SD-WAN. And um, what third-party collectors are you supporting specifically? Yeah, so um, in, in this first phase, we're supporting uh, three third-party collectors, and those are uh, Live Action, Plixer, and Orion. Uh, those are three of the very commonly used ones. We've had relationships with folks there for, for many years. And um, you know they, they provide a rich set of analytics, again, not just at a, at a basic network level, but they have you know, advanced integration to be able to take in our application statistics around uh, round trip times and server response times uh, and codec information and all those rich things that, that we export uh, and natively into our controller. Uh, we're going to export those things to them as well. And they have the capabilities to take that information information, ingest it, and actually present it in a meaningful way to the consumer. Well, that just about comes to an end for today, uh, this Tech Bytes with Palo Alto Networks. Bill, is there anything that you wanted to tell people about? Yeah, we have an upcoming webcast, really deep dive on these topics coming up at Thursday, April 15th. The webcast is available at go.paloaltonetworks.com forward slash AIOps. 
And so if I want to see what this AI ops looks like, you can probably get along to that and actually see more, get more of the inside running of what that looks like. And Bill, if people need to get more information and perhaps from you, can they find you on the internet? Yes. So on Twitter, my handle is at Bill CGX. And on LinkedIn, I am Bill J. Pruitt. Of course, you can harass your reseller for more Palo Alto Prisma SD-WAN products. And if you're interested in that, I'm sure your reseller would be pleased to help you. Thanks so much to Bill for joining us today. And thanks to Palo Alto Networks for being a sponsor. If you enjoyed this episode and you want even more deeply nerdy, weird content like this for free, you can subscribe on any of your favorite podcatchers as just by searching up packet pushes and selecting tech bytes or the network break as always you can follow us on twitter as well as at packet pushes find us on linkedin and rate us on apple podcasts or your favorite podcast platform and last but not least remember that too much networking would never be enough